What a blessing to be with you this morning. God bless you. Thanks for joining us in this room. Thank you for those of you joining us uh, via our webcast. Uh, what a privilege to preach on three amazing parables. You're pretty familiar with them, probably. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. I want to show you an image of my dad's confirmation certificate. I hope this will be working today. Oh, dear. Am I doing this wrong? Press the button, and the image appears. There it is. So Germany, 1951. Uh, yeah, so German script, hard to read, the handwriting. Um, talks about my dad's confirmation. We have it framed in our house. It's hanging on a wall uh, with, uh, without killing you with a terrible joke about a German shepherd. That's a picture <laughs> of a German shepherd, 1951. That's how they suppose he looked in Germany. He has a staff, has that hat on, that heavy cloak. Carrying a sheep in his arms. It's a beautiful image. But I have to tell you, I wish he had the sheep around his neck, on his shoulders. Uh, more about that in a second. Is this going to not work? Oh, no. <laughs> Next slide, please. We'll have to do that. The parables we're talking about are about a lost uh, sheep, a lost coin, and a lost uh, son. When Jesus tells parables, they're not nice myths. They're not classic old stories that teach a simple lesson. Jesus is upsetting the apple cart. He is revolutionary. He's changing the way people think about life and eternity through these parables. In these three parables, I think it's safe for us to say that Jesus is placing a grenade on the table and pulling out the pin. He was announcing a new way to live. Let's pray. Father, we are um, only good because you have been good for us. We are only comfortable because Jesus became incredibly uncomfortable for us. We only have peace because Jesus took our hell and gives us the peace that he earned through his perfect life. Um, let us hear the preaching of the word today. Let it change our lives for those of us in this room today that will enjoy the holy meal. Let us benefit from it as you have promised. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. My Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Uh, slide, next slide, please. Where we want to start here is that Jesus is speaking to people who have dropped the ball. In the parables, we read that he was talking to the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, and he's pointing a finger at them and, and, and about to say, look, I'm going to talk to you about a lost sheep that I will be the shepherd of, but I'm telling you this because that was your job to be the shepherd. If we go back to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds, of Israel who only take care of yourselves should not shepherds take care of the flock. You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and, uh, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And let's jump ahead to Ezekiel 11, uh, 34, 11. Let's read this together out loud. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Isn't that amazing that that's in Ezekiel? And Jesus is pointing his picture at the Pharisees and saying, you guys were supposed to be the shepherds, but since you dropped the ball, watch what I'm about to do. So the stage is set for the parable of the lost sheep. 
story goes like this. We read it earlier. A shepherd has 100 sheep. One gets lost, so he leaves the 99 to go search for the one that's lost. When he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and brings it back to the flock. Now, if you could put up the next slide, notice how it begins in Matthew 15, 4. Jesus says, what man of you? In other words, would you, he's saying, would you guys do this? Which of you would choose to do this? I wouldn't do that. If I had 100 sheep and one was lost, I wouldn't leave the 99 to go find the one. Then the other 99 could be killed or stolen or scattered or whatever. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I hate the fact that I lost one, but I'm a good businessman. You take the 1% loss and you call it a day and you take care of the 99. Jesus says, not me. This is one, another way that Jesus announces his holiness, right? We, we know that one of the definitions for holiness is that I'm different than you. I'm not like you. I would not leave that one. I would go after it. And just like that starburst that Laura was talking about, he can't stand that there's one missing. There's a not very good show on the History Channel called The Curse of Oak Island. If you really like the show, I apologize for talking disparagingly about it. It's okay. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Oak Island is apparently this island off the coast of Nova Scotia in Canada, and the show um, shows the efforts and the expense and the danger that this treasure-seeking team goes through. They don't even know what the treasure is. There just has been a myth about Oak Island that there's some treasure here. They're not sure what it is. Maybe it's a pirate's treasure. Some, pay, some say it's Shakespeare's original transcripts. Maybe it's the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus actually used at the, at the first Lord's Supper. Maybe it's the Ark of the Covenant. They don't know. But the show chronicles digging and the expense and the danger that they go through to find the treasure of Oak Island. Royal Redeemer, you're worth so much more than a pirate's treasure or Shakespeare's original transcripts or the Holy Grail, even the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus won't give up looking for you until he finds you. And when he finds you, look at the way he brings you home. Next slide, please. Ride Jesus' shoulders in repentance. When Jesus finds a lost sheep, and this is my favorite part, he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and brings it back. Now, this part of the story, the Pharisees are mad because they have this set of rules that says they can have nothing to do with mean, evil, sinful people. They consider themselves righteousness. They're the good people. And they would, first of all, never go look for a bad person. They certainly wouldn't have any will to help them. There's no way in the world they would touch them, and they certainly wouldn't pick them up and carry them. But our good, our good shepherd, Jesus, facilitates the sheep turning from its lost direction and begins heading in the right direction. And this is our story of repentance. Remember, we talk about this. Repentance is changing your mind. It's changing your direction. It literally means going in the other way. And it's all done on the power of the Good Shepherd. When you find it challenging to repent, when you don't feel like you have the ability to turn away from your sin, when you don't think you have the will or the power, remember that the Good Shepherd is carrying you in repentance. This was revolutionary for me. I repent, sure, but it's actually Jesus who's doing it for me. He's carrying me back to goodness and wholeness and the family. Romans 5, 6 through 8. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person. Uh, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And notice that there's no hit on the nose by the shepherd. He doesn't kick it in the behind. He doesn't scold it or tell it how stupid or selfish or, or, or how it has no control it's a warm ride on the shoulders of the rescuer. 
And the trip back to the flock is not at all on the sheep's effort. He's not taking a single step. The shepherd doesn't tie a noose around its neck and kind of drag it against its will back to the flock. Zero effort is needed by the sheep to get back to the flock. And so it is with our salvation. So it is with our rescue. Your membership in God's family is not because you found your way back or because you made a heroic effort back to righteousness or because you decided it was a good idea to leave the far country and come back home. It's solely on account of Jesus, the good shepherd, his rescuing efforts. He went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for me. I'm reading a commentary these days by a guy that's really helping me out. And some of the illustrations he has is great. He asks these questions. He says, why was the stone rolled away at Jesus' resurrection? And why was the curtain torn from top to bottom at the crucifixion? Why did that happen? The stone didn't need to be rolled away for Jesus to come out. Remember, in his resurrected, his new glorious body, he could pass through walls. We see about that later. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away for him to get out. God rolled the stone away from the tomb so we could look in. He provided a way for us to look in and see that even death itself has been defeated by our Savior. The curtain was ripped from top to bottom, not so that Jesus, the Lord, could let out himself from the Holy of Holies. Remember, that was the barrier between humanity and the Holy of Holies. He didn't rip the curtain so holiness could come out. He's God. He can do what he wants. He ripped the curtain for us top to bottom so that we could look in. He provided a way for us. It's not that we did any of this, that all the barriers between righteousness and sinfulness have been destroyed by the effort of God. Zero percent effort on our part. Before the Last Supper, Jesus is talking to the disciples in Luke 22, I'll paraphrase. He's talking to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he might sift you and the others like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you might remain faithful so that when you return to me, you can encourage the others. This is repentance. The order in which things are happening are so important here. Jesus says, Satan's going to tempt you and the others. Next thing that happens. But I have prayed for you. I'm doing this for you so that you might remain faithful. Peter and the rest of you, I'm giving you faith so that when you turn back to me in repentance, you can encourage the others. Repentance is all on God. The turning around of our lives is because of him. And all we really need to do is let him. Let the good shepherd pick you up and put you on his shoulders and walk you back to the flock. Won't spend a lot of time on the parable of the lost coin. It's the shortest of the three. It's right in the middle. A woman has ten coins. She loses one. So she sweeps the house clean, the Bible says. This is reference to God putting away all distractions as he rescues us. Jesus has no distractions in his rescue mission. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. No distractions. I'm here for you. I'm rescuing you, rescuing you and that's my job. And when the old woman finds the tenth coin, the one that's lost, she picks it up, and she puts it back with the other nine. Again, another reminder that it's her effort, that it's the master's effort to bring the thing that is lost back to the things that are found. Coin can't, can't find itself, can't walk itself back to the other nine. Interesting, as we compare the three parables, the lost sheep, that's a live uh, object that can have its own will. The third one, the younger brother, the parable of the lost uh, son, uh, he's alive and can choose to be on his own. But the middle one, the lost coin, inanimate object, can't rescue itself. This is God making it clear to us that the coin can't find itself. I will find you. What you need to do is submit. Humbly say, I'm lost. Pick me up and carry me home. So next slide, please. We move on to the prodigal son. We'll talk about this one for a while. Who are you in the story of the prodigal son? 
We'll talk about this one because this one is a bit more challenging. The story goes like this. There's a, son, a father with two sons, and the younger comes to the father and says, give me my inheritance. In other words, give me the money you would give me when you die. And the father does, and this younger son takes all his money and goes off to what the Bible calls a far country and spends it with prostitutes and other evil living. It's all gone. Money's all spent. A famine comes on the land. He has nothing, no way to help himself, so he gets a job feeding the pigs, and he looks at the pig slop and wishes he could eat that. And the Bible says, then he comes to his senses and says to himself, if I get, go back to my father and tell him that I've sinned against you in heaven and I'm no longer, to be, uh, no longer fit to be your son, but I will work for you. I'll be like one of your hired hands. I'll do something for you, Father, then you can do something for me. You can feed me and clothe me. I won't be in my father's house. I won't be treated as one of his sons, but I'll be in better shape. So on his way back, he's thinking about this speech he'll give his father, and his father's been looking for him. Day after day, the father's been waiting for him to return. And when the father sees him coming back, the father runs to him. And he starts with this ridiculous, preconceived, well-rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against you in heaven, and I'm no longer fit to be your son. And the father stops him and says, quickly, bring a robe and a ring and sandals to my son. And kill the fattened calf because we're going to have a party. And he takes him by the, by the shoulder and takes him back into his household. And you're saying right now, Mark, I thought you just said repentance is all on Jesus. This young man was walking back to the father on his own. And I say, no, that's not repentance. That's making a deal with God. That's the young man coming back and saying, I'm going to make a deal with my father. I won't be entered into his house as one of his sons, but I'll make a deal. I'll be a good boy and you can feed me and clothe me. That's not repentance. When we go back to the father and say, let's make a deal, God. I'll be a good person. I won't cheat on my taxes. I won't kill anybody. And you get to bless me. That's not coming back in repentance. For me, I believe the repentance in this story happens with the father waiting and looking. And when he sees him, he runs out to him. And when the son starts this ridiculous speech about not being fit to be uh, one of his sons, but I'll work for you, he stops him. And that's another act of repentance on behalf of the father. And it continues with a ring and a robe and sandals and welcoming him back into the house in a party. That's the repentance for the younger brother. So who are we in the story of the prodigal son? Are we the prodigal son? Maybe that works for me. I had a time away from the Lord and he found me and brought me back. And that's a comfortable place to be. Maybe you see yourself as one of the partiers, someone invited back to the party after the son's been found. That's a good, comfortable place to be. We're not the father, that's, that's the God figure for sure. But maybe the uncomfortable reality for us today is that we're the older son. The story continues in Luke 15. Let me find it and read it to you. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, came home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. 
I find that to be myself sometimes. I like being a good Christian. I'm obedient. I plant seeds of righteousness and they harvest and grow. And I was a good planter and I was disciplined. So all the righteousness that I have, I deserve right, wrong. It is only by God's grace that I'm a member of his household. And everything he has is mine because of his goodness. And when I see someone coming into salvation, someone coming into glory because of God's goodness, and I become angry, I could not be more in error than anything else. And that's the older brother. I wonder if that's me this morning. I wonder if there's a little bit of that in all of us this morning. Reminds me of an Old Testament story. Jonah and the... Yeah, Jonah and the whale. Okay, important part of the story, but not really the essence of the story. God tells Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh to preach righteousness to them. They're evil. They're awful people. And he doesn't want to go. And maybe it's because he's afraid. They're evil people. They'll probably kill him. So he goes the other way, gets thrown overboard, the fish swallows him three days, comes back out, finally goes to Nineveh and preaches repentance to the evil people of Nineveh. And they all repent. They all come into God's glory because of God's goodness. And you know what Jonah does? He is mad. It's not really Jonah and the whale. It's Jonah and the bad attitude. That's really what it is. Jonah 4, it's four chapters. You should read it this afternoon. Take you 20 minutes. After all these evil people turn to the Lord... To Jonah, this seemed wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I told you, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall the flee, uh, forestall and flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away. It's better for me to live than die. Uh, sorry, it's better for me to die than live, he says. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Have you ever been so mad that you wanted to die? That's what Jonah's saying. I don't know if it's Hebraic hyperbole or if he really was that mad. But he's a good guy. He's a prophet of God. I do things right. I obey God. I should be in the kingdom of heaven. Not the evil people of Nineveh. God, you're too kind. You're too gracious. I don't like that. It makes me mad. That's the older brother in the parable of the lost brother the one who's out and falsely claims that I've never disobeyed you. And the father says, you've been with me always. It convicts me. It hurts my heart. I thought I, was, I thought I was better than that. And maybe you're convicted too. And you see yourself more as a Jonah, more as an older brother. Maybe you see yourself as a Pharisee. These are the people that Jesus was telling the story to. Well, the good news is point number four. There's hope for struggling Pharisees. Jesus is not only telling the story of the lost for those things which are lost, the sheep and the coin and the younger brother. He's also talking to the people that are in the kingdom of heaven but are so self-righteous that they get mad at God when the really bad people are allowed in. Look what the father says to the son again, the older son. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God wants all to be saved, the really bad people and those of us who are self-righteous and proud and arrogant. And we know about this from 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish those often of far country and those in his kingdom who are self-righteous, but everyone to come to repentance. 
1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who what? Wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what's the result of all this lostness and foulness? Well, it's a great celebration. Point number five, a soul that is found is cause for great celebration. In all three of the parables, the finding of the sheep, the finding of the coin, the finding of the lost brother, whether it's one out of a hundred or one out of ten or one out of two, each time the master calls friends and family together and there's a party. A redeemed soul is important. God's heart is for you. God's heart is for you. You can tell by the celebration. How important is it that God finds you? Pretty important because there's a big party every time one of us gets found. You can tell by the friends and neighbors who gather. I heard one pastor say you can judge the spiritual health of a church by the sincere celebration at the redemption of one's soul. And I think that's right. We've all been affected by this quarantine. I don't need to rehash it again. Strange things. All celebrations have been muted, right? The graduations in the spring, you get to get your uh, diploma, no contact, you know, take it out of the basket or however they did it, you drive around the track. My heart breaks for weddings. So many of you are trying so hard to make this work and you're postponing and then again, okay, now we'll have it in this day. And it's, it's a muted celebration, right? Only so many people are allowed. The celebration in heaven for a redeemed soul is not quarantine specific. It's not pressed down. It's not muted. It's a, it's a real hootenanny. There's cause for great celebration at the saving of one's soul. So, God loves saving sinners. God loves saving sinners. If you've been away from him, either as a lost sheep or a coin or a, a younger brother who was off in the far country, or if you've been in his house but just proud, just not brokenhearted over sin, just not rejoicing the fact that even the most evil of us get invited in if we will allow it, ride Jesus' shoulders back in repentance. Let him do the hard work of bringing you back to him and celebrate his goodness. Three next steps for you. These are on your worship outline if you picked one up. If you are away from the Lord, allow him to bring you back. There's no effort, but there's humility, humbleness, there's brokenness, there's the understanding that you don't have the first ability to take one step back to him. Ride his shoulders back in repentance. Number two, pray for a soft heart that loves people who aren't like you. If you've been in the church for a while like I have, boy, that arrogance can creep in, right? You see those people on the street or whatever on the news, people not like you, in the other political party, whatever. Have a broken heart. Have a, an attitude of your heart that is so yearning for them to come into the kingdom of heaven that you can't wait for it to happen. Number three, celebrate your membership in God's family. <laughs> Real hoot and nanny. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for saving me, lost as, as lost could be. And you, you carried me back and you washed me clean and you stand me up and I'm, he I'm here in your kingdom. But also, um, for, for me, in this uh, time of my life where I've been around you for a while and arrogance can, can, can slip in and, and um, self-righteousness, I'm one of the good ones. God likes me because I'm good. And that possibility of anger when the unrighteous are welcomed in too. Oh, how it must break your heart. Let our hearts be broken as your heart has been broken through this. Walk with us. 
Bring us back to repentance through Christ's power. In Jesus' precious and everlasting name we pray. And together we all say,